Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In Chapter 57, Lady Catherine's visit is still haunting Lizzie. She wonders if she will ever see Darcy again, and is heartbroken because she most likely won't. Lizzie is convinced that Lady Catherine will go make her case to Darcy, and he'll actually listen to her. Lizzie counsels herself to give up hope. Then, Mr. Bennet beckons Lizzie one day to his study. He has gotten a letter from his favorite correspondent, Mr. Collins. So much information in this letter. Collins says, one, congrats to Jane. Bingley's a total catch. Two, Charlotte's knocked up. Three, glad Lydia got married, but you still shouldn't have let her in the house. She's supposed to be dead to you. And I say that as a Christian minister. And four, most importantly of all, Lizzie is not to marry Mr. Darcy. Lady Catherine said so, dude. End of conversation. Peace. Mr. Bennett thinks this letter is hilarious and has invited Lizzie in on the joke. Darcy could never love Lizzie, and Mr. Bennett knows that Lizzie hates Darcy. Isn't it hilarious, Lizzie? Nudge, nudge. Lizzie forces herself to laugh. The text tells us that she's never had to try so hard to hide her emotions in her life. We have seen Lizzie frustrated with her father before, and we have seen Lizzie judge her father before. But this is the first time in the novel that we see Lizzie as a victim of Mr. Bennett's cruel wit. He doesn't intend to wound his daughter, but he does, deeply. Here is Roxanne Eberly on Austin's conclusion on Mr. Bennett. I think Mr. Bennett is one of Austin's more mixed characters. I, I don't read him as a villain. I read him as a flawed character. And so in a way, I think Wickham is more of a paper character in some ways. Although even his interiority is suggested, we learn enough about his interiority, it, not to feel sympathetic, but to kind of understand his motivation. With Mr. Bennett, he is a very problematic figure and erring in so many ways. And yet the text wants us to be sympathetic, I think, to him, to laugh with him in the end. So that's his virtue. He has taught Lizzie to do something all the readers admire, which is 
to laugh, to be satiric, to have the last word. These are all things, the virtues that we like in Elizabeth, and we are taught to believe they come from her father. I think Roxanne Eberly is right, that one of the things we love about Lizzie and Mr. Bennett is their wit. But here, at the end of the novel, we feel the danger of it. Even Mr. Bennett's wit leads him to hurting his favorite daughter. And we see the potential pitfalls for Lizzie's future. This is a moment in which it is clear to us. It might be good that Darcy is considered the opposite of Lizzie. That opposites attract. Because two people who love each other can change each other for the better. Just as Lizzie can make Darcy more lively, Darcy could keep Lizzie from becoming Mr. Bennet, hurtful to other people for her own amusement. In fact, we've already seen Lizzie start to change in this way, become more careful about her wit and quick judgments. In Chapter 58, Mr. Darcy comes to Longbourn again, which means that he didn't fall for his aunt's machinations. Bingley, Jane, Kitty, Lizzie, and Darcy all go on a walk. Somehow, Darcy and Lizzie get left alone together. And Lizzie takes a big leap and starts talking. Here is Roxanne Eberly again on part of why this inevitable conversation finally happens here. I think that their relationship is kind of based on being outside. I think even though you don't really think about that, because it's such a great house novel and it's such a village novel and it's such a little you know gentry house novel but if you think about it all the important interactions between Darcy and Elizabeth happen outside that the, the problems occur inside and resolutions occur outside their love is too big for drawing rooms It's the Pemberley Woods that are actually so enchanting. And what are men to rocks and mountains after all? The outdoors is where Lizzie and Darcy thrive because their love is big and Caroline Bingley can have her turns about the room. On this stroll, Lizzie gets to thank Darcy for saving Lydia, for allowing Lydia to be Lydia still. All the miscommunications get sorted out and Darcy proposes. After a whole book of bad proposals, we finally get that good proposal that we've been waiting for. But God bless Austin. Most of the scene isn't on the page. Darcy says, if your feelings are still what they were last April, tell me at once. My affections and wishes are unchanged, but one word from you will silence me on this subject forever. And we don't get Lizzie's words back. We suddenly skip from direct discourse to indirect, right when the romantic parts happen. And yet, this is the greatest romance novel of all time. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley, from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, we end on such a weird chapter here. I know, it's wild how she does this, right? But you have just pointed out so many crucial things. I want to talk about one of them as 
the thing that we need to know, which is really about this notion that what happens between Lizzie and Darcy outside is what matters. Outside is public. And it's impossible to have these conversations while chaperoned, right? So I just want to think for a moment about the appropriateness, about, you know, the rules essentially, and how unusual it is for a Lizzie and a Darcy to even have these opportunities. And let's go back to some source material. The Lady's Guide to Complete Etiquette was published in 1800, and it's one of the examples of conduct literature we keep talking about. And I'm just going to quote directly from it. It has all these rules about how a girl should live. The fact that you don't think I know these by heart is deeply (laughs) offensive to me. But then I was like, oh, maybe she thinks the listeners don't know. So go ahead. We all know, Vanessa, that you would never, ever do anything untoward, like take a turn around the woods with an unmarried man. Never. Okay. The first and most intelligible of these, meaning these rules, is the rule that no young lady should be seen in public without a chaperone who, provided that she is or has been married, is considered, whatever her age may be, as thoroughly suitable for the office. This accommodating privilege, it is true, occasionally entails rather ludicrous consequences, as in the case where damsels of mature years make their appearance in a ballroom under the wing of a mentor younger than themselves. In other words, Lydia could be a chaperone in this situation, (laughs) but, you know, a spinster of a much wizened age simply could not be. So, That's the general rule, but it's something that's really held in London, in town. It's really strict in town. An unmarried woman can't go anywhere with a guy she's not related to unless she's accompanied by a married gentlewoman or maybe a servant. But in the country, oh, those loose, wild girls of the country, they don't follow these rules quite as much. And especially in the Bennett household, we're told at the beginning of this chapter that Mrs. Bennett is not someone who's in the habit of walking. And considering that she's the person who should be out on every single walk with all of these unmarried daughters, and we know she never does, is sort of a nod to her unsuitableness as a parent, according to social mores. And the reason that these rules even exist is to protect an eligible match. So in case, you know, two people should fall into a fit of passion mutually. There would need to be a married woman who would say, tut, tut, six feet apart or whatever. The closer a woman gets, though, to being engaged, the less this is really seriously considered. So in other words, Jane and Bingley, obviously, we can see what happens between the two of them when they are left to themselves. And the fact that Lizzie and Darcy are speaking the way that they are, and perhaps retrospectively through all of these scenes, sort of, I think, would suggest to a reader of the time that there is this implied engagement, because otherwise, why would they ever be in this situation? I know that whenever I take a turn about the Serpentine in Hyde Park, I always make sure that my lady's maid is with me. Sometimes I ask her to stay more than six feet back, but that's only when I'm feeling saucy. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's interesting about Lizzie and Darcy being left alone, right? Because we know that it's laughable that they are almost engaged, right? Like literally in the previous chapter, Mr. Bennett was laughing at it. But we see how ridiculous these rules are because you can send off five people together in a mixed party that is totally acceptable. But the engaged couple goes off to snog in the shrubbery and Kitty goes off to visit Mariah. And like all of a sudden, all sorts of shenanigans can be gotten up to. And one of the things that boggles the mind, and I know we've talked about this before, but I feel like it bears repeating, is just that the society is built on these rules and yet it is also built on the fact that you have to find ways to slip through the cracks of the rules. Because if Darcy and Lizzie were following the rules by the letter of the law, they would never get engaged. Darcy would not have proposed in front of Kitty. And so it's actually the fact that they were breaking this rule and found themselves alone that they were able to do this marvelous match. And so a rule that by design has to be broken in order for society to keep functioning is so infuriating because <laughs> if it goes badly, if the risk goes badly, you're a tart, right? Like you're ruined and yet you have to take the risk in order to marry. Well, you have to take the risk in order to marry for love. I mean, these rules exist right. in place to protect the old way of doing things, to protect capital, to make sure that everything is regimented and approved and basically, you know, run like a bank transaction. There's something about breaking out of the class expectations, about breaking out of the sort of rigorous policing of gender roles, and then also breaking out of what marriage is for inherently that allows them to make this match. Because otherwise, we would just have Darcy either married off to Anne de Borg or possibly Caroline Bingley. Like he has all of these options for what class is telling him to do. And it's almost like a spectrum, right? Like who he was promised to at birth versus who he might flirt with in a drawing room versus, you know, Ms. Dirty Hems here with whom he realizes his actual inner potential and not just his monetary worth or social worth. I mean, yes. I just think it's interesting that almost all of the engagements in this book and marriages don't follow that rule. Like, obviously, Lydia and Wickham, but even Mr. Collins and Charlotte, right? Mr. Collins tried to do it the proper way by talking to Mrs. Bennett. And it was actually Mrs. Bennett sending Charlotte alone into a room with Mr. Collins to, quote unquote, keep Mr. Collins company while she ran after Lizzie that gave Charlotte her chance. So it's just fascinating, right? Like Jane and Bingley aren't a marriage that's supposed to happen, obviously Lizzie and Darcy. But with all the marriages in this book, so few of them actually follow these rules. And, you know, for just observing what Austin is pointing to and laughing at, right? She's like, you can have all these rules, but Mrs. Forster is going to be 15 and marry a 40-year-old man and then be able to chaperone a wild child, and right? Like, this is just so ridiculous. And look, it's not even how most marriages happen. Most marriages are happening at the margins, right? Like, can we please stop pretending that they're not happening in these, like, cracked spaces? I don't know how much most marriages were happening at the margins in the higher classes, as much as we all know that I am cranky about where 
Austin's radicalism fails. I do think that stitched into this is this really profound class critique of the fact that the more money you have, the less love you're allowed to have in certain ways, right? The less freedom you're allowed to have. And I think that there is something which is really deeply committed to the emotional liberation of the aristocracy here. You know, I'm not like weeping for the aristocracy, but it also allows people to class jump in a different way. Mm -hmm. The class system is changing. You know, we have a new middle class. We have the industrial revolution happening. And I think that it's a moment of real panic for the Lady Catherines of the world and the people who work, you know, on the upkeep of not just her land and her parish, but her traditions. This panic is, I think, very much about that encroaching change. And there's a democratization that is beginning to happen, not just in money, but in the heart, in marriage here. And I think that that's part of what lasts about Austin is the ability to sort of find radicalism in love, even in some circumscribed way. Yeah. I'm just thinking about, I know so little about her biography, in part because people keep telling me to know about her biography is to pretend to know about her biography. But some of the facts that we know, right, is that her oldest brother was like sent off to be adopted by a wealthy family and therefore became super rich and married a super rich woman. And then she had a brother who was disabled. We don't know what his disability was, but we know that he was sent out of the house because, you know, they didn't know how to deal with him appropriately. We know that Austin was never married, that Cassandra was engaged, but her fiance died. And so she was always financially precarious And so just the diversity of experiences amongst the siblings that I happen to know about is just wild to me and really belies, you know, Regency romance, which written nowadays, part of the fantasy, you know, of a series like the Bridgerton series is that one rich older brother with a title can protect all seven of his younger siblings. And Austin just knew that that wasn't true, that you could have the richest, most landed older brother, and still you could effectively be homeless and unmarried and not even able to chaperone your freaking niece. And so, yeah, it just makes sense to me that she's like, this system is bogus, y'all. Like, there's no protection. Only the richest are safe and the rest of us are screwed. So as you know, I am not a reader of Regency romance, but I am so curious as a reader of romance how you feel about the proposal scene. If it does it for you, what it feels like in terms of what what follows, or if it feels like it's actually just a totally weird separate entity somehow. I mean, there are two things that are satisfying to me about a declaration scene. And one is honestly like the buildup to the first line, right? As soon as the first line or the first kiss, the first move is made, you can exhale, right? You've been waiting for however many pages. You're fraught. You know they'll end up together, but will they actually end up together? How will it happen? And as soon as the first line is said, you're just like, "Ah, okay, And then the rest is wish fulfillment, right? It's like, these are all the things I wish somebody would say to me. So I would argue that you get a lot of that, 
right? You get the, if you will thank me, let it be for yourself alone, right? And then the next paragraph, my affections and wishes are unchanged, but one word from you will silence me on the subject forever, right? And then you get, it taught me to hope as I had scarcely ever allowed myself to hope before. And like, to me, that is, like, I can breathe. He's going to propose. He's admitting that saving Lydia was the romantic gesture. Like, I love all of that. And then there's the unraveling of the miscommunication, which is the other half of what's satisfying. And what Austin does is invert it. Rather than doing, well, this is what I love about you and this is what I love about you, It's like a mutual grovel scene where Lizzie is like, this is what I did wrong and this is what I did wrong. And Darcy is like, no, this is what I did wrong. And they get to forgive each other. And so actually, you get the two components that I think are what is emotionally satisfying to the romance reader, which is the (gasps) finally and then the, oh, this is how we got here. Let me show you how much I love you. What's amazing is that she doesn't give a sentence more than that. Anything that isn't satisfying in one of those two exact ways just isn't here. And so I don't think we miss it. It's more just remarkable how perfectly sparse it is that there isn't one extra word that like is super swoony and you're like, oh, I want to hear that he like loves her earlobes, but it's not what makes these scenes great in a romance novel. I don't think, and I'm speaking for myself, but I don't think that it's different for most romance readers. I love that. It almost feels like the moment that they acknowledge that this is going to happen, it's just smash cut to marriage. Like what this conversation is to me is like the model of what a successful marriage looks like. There's humor, there's friendship, there's communication, there's apology, there's reflection on the past together, not everything is said, like all of these things that feel like, right, we've had such a model of a bad marriage here. Like we've we've had this threaded through the whole book of watching Mr. and Mrs. Bennett and the cautionary tale of their marriage. And now we're seeing literally the opposite of that through this whole dialogue. And I think there's something about that that's incredibly effective. I mean, I'm not a big proposal person, so I'm not missing that a ton. But I am really, really interested in how people love each other and how the ways that they signify how they love each other can function or not function. And it's such a beautiful model here between two people who may have not ever gotten it together and now have this very modern and respectful and I think very future looking way of being equals in a marriage. Yeah. And there's something like pillow talk adorable about this, like, well, when did you first like me? And like reconstructing the beginning of the romance now that you know it was a romance all along that is like such a fun part of a relationship, of any relationship, right? Like of a friendship. And so, I, yeah, it's remarkable to me how like on the first five times I read this novel, I didn't realize how much was skipped. And God bless Austin, I really don't think I would ever have realized it if she didn't call our attention to it, right? 
eventually she's like, and all the things were said that are usually said in these situations. And I'm like, why do you want me to know that you're skipping it? It feels political that you're like, and this is just embarrassing for them. So we're not going to do that to you. <laughs> Let the couple have their privacy and be idiots together. I know she's the anti-jumbotron. Yeah, exactly. She's like, everyone look away. They're kissing. They're in the shrubbery. So, of course, you know, as much as we see them fully knit together in this way that we can imagine being how they will be married in the future, there's this one thing that they're not ready for. Can we talk about that? Which is whether or not Lizzie can laugh in the way that she wants to laugh at Darcy. So Austin writes, she remembered that he had yet to learn to be laughed at. And it was rather too early to begin. And there's something so interesting about this following an entire chapter, which is sort of based in the pain that she feels around her father's sense of humor. And yet Mm -hmm. one of the things that we've loved most about Lizzie all along is her wit and how she laughs. And I'm just curious what you think about about what that means. If it feels optimistic, if it feels like we're losing part of someone who we love, if it feels like growing up a little. I feel like it's all of those things, right? You want a kid to learn to be wary of the world and you it's painful to watch them learn to be wary of the world. You're like, I love that you don't know that yet, but also you're just going to get taken advantage of if you don't. And I feel like that's a little bit of what's happening to Lizzie, that she's she's realized that in order to really laugh, the person has to be ready to be laughed at because otherwise it's cruel. And like, that's not a joyful laugh. That's not the kind of laughing she wants to do. And yeah, this yet is fascinating, right? She remembered that he had yet to learn to be laughed at and that it was rather too early to begin, Right. And I think part of why she thinks he will is that he'll learn to trust her. I laugh at people I love a lot because they charm me, right? Like, I think it's adorable. But I do think at the beginning of relationships, people are like, why are you laughing? I'm like, because I am enchanted by you, right? Like, because it is so sweet that you are doing whatever it is that you are doing. And I think that as they come to trust me, they know me laughing, quote unquote, at them is actually me adoring them. And so I feel like Lizzie's just being careful and we're learning that she has a tender side. But I also think that it speaks to they're going to have an awkward first few months of marriage. <laughs> Getting married, barely knowing someone. How many hours have these two people actually spent together? I know. And this is like our best case scenario, right? This is when they've been alone so many times when they shouldn't have been. (laughs) And like, what? Let's say they spent 10 hours together at Lady Catherine's. Let's say they spent another 20 hours together when Jane was sick. And then like a day together. They have spent like less than a work week together for sure. Mainly pretending not to see each other mainly pretending not to be thinking about each other and definitely mainly not talking. Yeah. And so, yeah, she's like, it's too early for that. I don't know. It also just speaks to me of the fact that she's like, wise. I think there's another thing too, which is, you know, so much of her relationship with her dad is around this sort of humor. 
And, you know, thinking about this book as a coming of age book and thinking about what it means to separate from your parents, you know, the fact that it's immediately preceded by her dad's humor, distancing her in a way that we haven't seen before. And that humor being directed to Darcy and to their relationship in general it's the first time that she seems to feel real pain. You know, she says that she's mortified for the first time by her father's sense of humor. And to me, that's the sort of, you know, as you shift from child to independent person, though, of course, in this era, it is from child to wife, that's part of the necessary separation. And I think that it's it's a moment in which she is saying, I'm not my father. My father would be laughing at this man from the beginning, at his spouse from the beginning, as he has probably with Mrs. Bennett, but that she is going to go a different way than her parents have. It also, you know, makes me wonder, you know, there's this moment in which Mr. Bennett says at the end of their conversation, for what do we live but to make sport for our neighbors and laugh at them in turn? And there is an element of that that has been so delicious throughout the book. But after this experience of his putting down Darcy and Darcy's possible affection for her, there's something that feels really dark about that statement and very kind of reflective, I think, about how wit has been levied through the book and through these characters who we love for their wit. I mean, I still think that the novel is pro-wit, if for no other reason than the way that Mr. Collins, you know, the most witless man alive, is shown in Chapter 57, right? Like, it is not only a witless letter, it's just artless. It's artless. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, this is something Claudia Johnson said to us months and months ago, but... Austin doesn't like characters who can't laugh at themselves. And I think part of why we forgive Mr. Bennett is that I'm not sure we have evidence of it, but we do believe that he is capable of laughing at himself. And Darcy might not be ready to be laughed at, but in this proposal conversation, he's a little bit laughing at himself, right? Without really laughing, (laughs) he's like... Uh, I thought I was calm when I wrote that letter, but looking back, I don't think I was actually calm, right? He's not quite joking, but he's being self-deprecating, which is a form of joking. And so I think that one of the ways that we can measure Austin's feelings about a character is like their ability to laugh at themselves. Bingley is very willing to laugh at himself. Jane is at least willing to be laughed at by Lizzie, right? And Mrs. Bennett doesn't even understand when people are laughing at her. And poor Mary. It feels like we have confirmation that Mary will be chaperoned by her sisters for life because she won't even leave the house. She's too busy to take a walk. And as we all know now, the walks are where it happens, girls. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, listeners. This is Naomi Westwater. You may know me from my previous classes at Not Sorry. I'm dropping into your feed today to let you know about an upcoming course I'm running starting March 17th called Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot as a Sacred Practice. In this course, I will teach you about the history and meaning of the cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck and model how they can be used as a tool for self-reflection and creativity. Through lecture, discussion with your classmates, and solo journaling, I will aim to help you develop your individual connection with tarot, this ancient tool for meaning-making. If you're looking to elevate your daily ritual, please join me starting Sunday evening, March 17th, for six weeks of habit-building, learning, and community. Head to notsorryworks.com for more information. And be sure to check out our sliding scale pricing and scholarships listed on the website. That's notsorryworks.com. But Lauren, one of the things that I just find fascinating and I don't know what to do with is how differently Lizzie and Darcy want to handle their past. Darcy wants to go over every detail of what happened. He starts quoting her, right? Like, this is what you said to me. And she says, oh, no, do not repeat what I said then. You must learn some of my philosophy. Think only of the past as its remembrance gives you pleasure. Is this supposed to be further evidence that they are like perfect puzzle pieces where he's going to be like, no, we have to learn what was hard in order to learn from it. And she's going to be like, can we please just laugh at it and move on? And he's going to be like, no, we can't. Or is this, yeah, is this something else? Is this just like adorable wit? Well, I think that we haven't seen proof of Darcy's rumination yet. And we need to have the whole process of hearing how much he has obsessed and pined and read and reread and thought and rethought and done the things that someone who's just madly in love with someone who they can't have does. And I think that because we haven't had access to his mind or his time in the same way that we have with Lizzie, that's a really important part of the scene. I also think that with Lizzie, like we know that Lizzie really relies on her force of will to either sit with something or not. I mean, she says in the prior chapter, or maybe it's the one before, like, if he's not showing up to see me, then I'm not going to see him in this way that feels like, right, because he wouldn't be showing up to see you, Lizzie. But there's this <laughs> one of this moment of like this like rubber glue moments where it's sort of like, you know, if he's over me, then I'm over him. And you can kind of feel her really, really work hard through the whole book to maintain that perspective, right? It's how she protects herself when he insults her initially. It's how she wishes that Jane could feel about Bingley when Jane gets hurt. And I think that as much as this is a happy ending, it's also a happy beginning, right? Like it's the Mm. yet in that line about how he hasn't learned to be laughed at yet. Like, Maybe we haven't seen Lizzie fully become vulnerable to the past yet. And 
that they'll have these things to teach each other, that they have these wonderful things that fit together, but they also have ways that they can grow. And we know that how they've grown is what has brought them here sort of against all odds, but that there's more growing to do. And that, of course, is part of what you want in a lifelong relationship is the ability to grow together. I mean, and we just see it in a million ways, right? Darcy is like, uh, looking back, it's how I was raised. I was raised to be a good person, but only in theory. I was actually spoiled, right? Like Darcy is like showing evidence of having reflected on his childhood. And, you know, there's pause and Lizzie's like, yep, nothing, nothing from my childhood. I was raised perfectly, right? Like she just like doesn't say anything. And again, I just, I love that this is considered this great perfect love, but these are not two people who are like, oh my God, totally. I was having the same thoughts, me too, right? Like you can love and respect someone and just be like totally different from them. And yeah, hopefully she can bring some light to him and I don't know, he can bring some willingness to not laugh to her. Not everything is a laughing matter. Well, and I think it's also a question of what you do with difference. Like it all feels like sort of a callback to that Netherfield moment where he said, great, we can read books and disagree about them. And she sort of had an eye roll response to that. Like knowing that he's interested in that difference is something that I think is a very good place for a husband to be at the beginning of a marriage. So Lauren, they got to go tell people. We're going to find out how the people react. (laughs) Mrs. Bennett, pro is my guess. Mr. Bennett has a moment of growth, I do recall. we are wrapping up Pride and Prejudice, so sad, I know, we realized that we almost got to the end of this season of Live from Pemberley without talking to the patron saint of Hot and Bothered, who is Stephanie Paulsell. She is a professor at Harvard Divinity School, and she is the person who first treated Jane Eyre as sacred with me nine years ago. And so our whole project is based on work that I did with Stephanie. And we would obviously be, I think, breaking a law if we didn't have her on this season. So we thought this proposal, this weird little scene, was a perfect opportunity to get Stephanie on the phone. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, Vanessa. Thank you for coming on. I can't believe we almost got through a whole season of one of our shows without having you on. We got you in right under the wire. I'm so glad to be here. So, Stephanie, these two chapters that we talked about today are the apotheosis of the most romantic book of, you know, the last 200 years. This is the novel that we all swoon over. It launched more than a thousand books. It's launched tens of thousands of books. And then we get to the proposal and there's like nothing. There's nothing. Why do we love this book when there's like no romance? I don't know. I think there is some sexiness 
in this non-proposal proposal. But it is weird that she pulls the veil down right at the crucial moment. She just says the happiness which this reply produced was such as he had probably never felt before, and he expressed himself on the occasion as sensibly and as warmly as a man violently in love can be supposed to do. You have to just make it up in your mind, and it's really hard to tell. She, you know, when when Emma says to Mr. Knightley, with me if you'll have me, or, you know, when she agrees to dance with him, that always sends like, she has these lines that just send a bolt of electricity up your spine. It's noticeably missing in Mr. Darcy's proposal. But yeah, why do we love this book? I was so struck this time by how hard Lizzie is having to work just to interpret the world around her. I thought a lot about, you know, your religious reading practices because she has to read underneath everything. She has to figure out, you know, what people mean by their actions or by the strange things that they say. And and I think she triumphs in the end because she is so attentive to the world around her and the text of her life. And, you know, her father says to her when he's reading her that terrible letter from that terrible Mr. Collins, he says, what else is life for, right? If if not to make sport for our neighbors and laugh at them in our turn. And for Lizzie, there's a lot more than that. And I think that's why we love her. She doesn't just want that. She wants love and everything that it means and community and everything that that means. But she's aiming very high. Yeah. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, oh, this is Austin's most famous book. This is like the book that we all turn to because it's a it's a love story between us and Lizzie. Like we're just all yeah, so totally. in love with Lizzie. And totally. right, like and Austin was in love with Lizzie, right? Like there's never been a more delightful creature, right? And right. we love Ann Elliot and we love Catherine, but Lizzie it like it really is that like Darcy doesn't matter. What we love about Darcy is that he gets that Lizzie is the prize. Yeah. Do you think that part of why we love Darcy is that he's an enigma? Austin will say, right? He said everything that a man violently in love could say within decorum. And so we just get to imagine it, right? Like, so what he's saying is we get to sort of write this dialogue for exactly what we would want someone violently in love to say to us. Yeah. Is that that a feature, not a bug of this? I don't know. Do we love Darcy? (laughs) Some of the things he's done in this book are a little hard to get past. But I think, yeah, I think his, you know, the kind of emptiness she leaves at the middle of him does let us fill it with whatever we want. Yeah. I mean, what he definitely is, as much as Lizzie wants love and passion and all of it, he's so safe. Yeah. Right? Like, she's going to be fine. And I'm just thinking about this as we're wrapping up the novel in comparison with Jane Eyre, which is a novel I studied with you for a long time, that like Rochester has done something really unforgivable. Yeah, yeah, really bad. Yeah, no, true, true. But it's interesting that these like great love stories have these men who were forgiving all the time. It's making me, yeah, it's making me sad. I know I want us to read better. Yeah, I know. I think, yeah, with Mr. Darcy, I think that there's some of it that just seems like it can't, somehow the character that she's drawn can't quite hold it all that she's making him do, that he could 
trash her sister and also be sorry in this last scene. You know, it's sometimes the lines between from A to B. I can't quite see how he got there, but maybe it's just love. Maybe Austin is saying it's just love. It just changes you. Um, and he's lucky that, you know, love will make him better and we can be glad of that. But um, yeah, we do have we do have to forgive them just like the women have to forgive them in order to go forward with them in the story. I mean, I, I do think that one of Austin's central arguments of the novel is that loving the right person can make you better and picking the wrong person to spend your life with can make you worse, right? right? Like right. it can make you Mr. Bennett who only laughs at his wife and... But the other way that I think of Darcy is, you know, the five love languages. I feel like he's an embodiment of acts of service love, right? Mm. And he's just, like, bad at all the other ones. Yeah. But, like, if you're into acts of service, right, like, he will go to London and negotiate with Wickham and try to hide it from you. and Yeah. Get Bingley back to Netherfield. And, like, this is a man who's going to work hard. To make you happy. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't want credit for it, which is speaks well of him. Mm-hmm. He wishes she didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I like when he says, you just say the word and I'm never going to bother you again. I know. Me too. That's, yeah. That's, I mean, that's when you said she's safe with him. That's what I thought of. Yeah. That he's, he's not going to stalk her. He's not going to keep bothering her. Oh my God. Our standards are so low. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Finishing Pride and Prejudice, it just like keeps making me think about Jane Eyre. And I remember a conversation that you and I had when we were treating Jane Eyre is sacred almost 10 years ago now, Stephanie. And one of the things that you said was that Jane Eyre was almost written in a fever that like you could yeah. see the ink blotches on the page mm. and that Pride and Prejudice was written with a scalpel. That you Mm. can, like, be like, nope, this is cut out. This is cut out. And I really just want you to expand on that. What what do you think the gift of the scalpel writing is? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think ordinarily the gift of the scalpel is just, there's just nothing extra. And it's just so finely drawn that everything from the, you know, she gets that emotions, she gets at drama, she gets at romance in this very like finely drawn way. But sometimes the scalpel feels like it's digging going too deep or something. It's or it's cutting out too much. And I think the proposal saying I would put that in that category that she cuts out too much. I mean it's just so interesting because it's so similar. The Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice dynamics at the end where Jane Eyre is teasing Rochester and is like torturing him and is like, well, torturing him is better than letting him torture himself and like teasing him is better than him being upset. And then Lizzie is teasing Darcy and there's that line like he hadn't yet learned how to laugh at himself. Yeah. Yeah. They both. And and she's like, and now's not the moment. (laughs) Now's not the time to teach him. No, I loved that part. I loved that part. But it's just so interesting that it's these like kind of impish women trying to like yeah. coax men out of themselves. Yeah. Right before they propose. It's strange how similar it is. Yeah. No, that's a great 
That's a great observation. And that's, I think, to your question about why we love Elizabeth. Yeah, she remembered that he had yet to learn to be laughed at, and it was rather too early to begin. Like she's <laughs> she's the one with the God's eye view of this whole situation, and she's making the decision. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on. It's been amazing reading Austin closely like this. Mm. It bears up to the sacred scrutiny. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, the reason why those sacred practices work so well is that they're trying to open space for something hidden. And Austin's got a lot of hidden things here. And she's got a character who's figuring out how to deal with the hidden and navigate the hidden. And um, so I think she lends herself really well to what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, my dear. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks, as always, to our Jane Level patrons, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reilly of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, Marquess Tucker Kratt of Seltzerworth, and Duchess Lauren Byer O'Connell of the Isle of Key Lime Pie. Thanks especially to Roxanne Eberly and Stephanie Paulsell for talking to us. To Lara Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Aramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Caitlin Hoffmeister, and Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, listeners. This is Naomi Westwater. You may know me from my previous classes at Not Sorry. I'm dropping into your feed today to let you know about an upcoming course I'm running starting March 17th called Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot as a Sacred Practice. In this course, I will teach you about the history and meaning of the cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith Tarot deck and model how they can be used as a tool for self-reflection and creativity. Through lecture, discussion with your classmates, and solo journaling, I will aim to help you develop your individual connection with tarot, this ancient tool for meaning making. If you're looking to elevate your daily ritual, please join me starting Sunday evening, March 17th, for six weeks of habit building, learning, and community. Head to notsorryworks.com for more information. And be sure to check out our sliding scale pricing and scholarships listed on the website. That's notsorryworks.com.